The end of the world has captured the imagination of people since the beginning of human history. In our own day, one of the most popular genres for books and TV shows and films is the end of the world dystopian apocalyptic storylines, right? Uh, struggling to save the world from catastrophic destruction brought on by war or disease or environmental devastation or alien invasion or just plain human stupidity. Or we have the surviving in a world that has been decimated by these things. Well, today we're going to look at some of the things that Jesus said about the end times and his second coming. But before we dive in, I just want to say a couple of things. First is this, if you're hoping that I'm going to be talking about high-tech, futuristic war machinery and secret societies and giant computers and tattoos on foreheads and, and that kind of thing, you're going to be disappointed. Right. That's part two. <laughs> We're going to stick closely to what the text says and not embellish it with a lot of speculative musings trying to connect Bible prophecy with current events. We should live like we are the generation that will see the second coming of Jesus, no matter what current events look like. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. So Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to, this, to its buildings. Do you see all these buildings, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. The temple in Jerusalem was one of the most beautiful and impressive structures in the world at that time. Come on. My, my notes just like went blank. Like, that's not a good thing for you. You don't want me at living. We're just all going to go home. But the temple in Jerusalem was one of the most beautiful and impressive structures in the world at that time. Uh, this photo that I have here. This is a, an artist's reconstruction to show approximately what the Temple Mount and the Temple would have looked like in the time of Jesus in relationship to the rest of the city of Jerusalem. And in this image, it gives us an idea of just how imposing the Temple complex was in relationship to the rest of the city in those days. The first Temple was built by Solomon around 966 B.C., and then in 587 B.C., the Babylonians came in and destroyed it when they invaded the country of Israel. Then under Zerubbabel, the returning Jewish exiles, they rebuilt the temple in 515 B.C., and this second temple was significantly smaller and less grand than the first temple that had been built by Solomon. 
But then in 19 BC, under Herod the Great, the temple underwent a massive reconstruction and expansion, which continued for the next 89 years, right up until its destruction in AD 70 by the Romans. And it was this magnificent, grand Herod the Great version of the temple that existed in the days of Jesus and is the one being talked about here in the Gospel of Matthew. In the time of Jesus, the temple area covered one-sixth of the city of Jerusalem, about 35 acres. It was an architectural wonder whose size and grandeur dominated the city. To give you a bit of perspective, the temple complex was twice the size of the famous Acropolis of Athens, Greece, where the Parthenon is. The foundation walls of the Temple Mount were constructed of these huge stones. One of the largest they have found measured 45 feet long, and then it was 12 feet wide and 12 feet high, weighing some 570 tons. There's little wonder why the disciples were impressed with the temple. Everyone was impressed with the temple who came to Jerusalem in those days. But things are not always as they appear to be on the surface. The temple was magnificent to look at, but the corrupt, hypocritical religious system that is now housed inside of it broke the heart of God. Jesus tells the disciples that the temple will be completely destroyed. He says, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. It seemed like an impossibility to the disciples that the temple would be destroyed. But that is exactly what will happen in a mere 40 years. The prediction by Jesus will be fulfilled in AD 70 when the city of Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed by the Romans. Here's a photo of, and this is in modern times, this photo here that you're looking at. Here's a photo of a portion of the western foundation wall of the Temple Mount. And it gives you some sense of the size of these walls when you note that the people are down there in that lower part of the photo. The people in the photo, they're actually standing on the same street that Jesus and his disciples would have been walking on some 2,000 years ago. The stones you see piled up next to the wall are believed to be some of the very stones of the temple buildings that the Roman army had thrown down off of the Temple Mount when they destroyed the temple and the other buildings there. The words of Jesus about the destruction of the temple were fulfilled in startling detail just 40 years after he said them. This next photo shows the famous Western Wall, which I'm sure most of us have heard of, which is just a small portion of the foundation wall of the Temple Mount. This particular portion of the foundation wall has become a sacred shrine of sorts for the Jews in our day. It's the closest thing that they have to a temple now. I think we should keep in mind that as surely as the words of Jesus about the fate of the temple were fulfilled, so everything else that Jesus has said will also take place. 
His words will be fulfilled no matter how impossible they might sound to us. Verse 3, it says, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus and his disciples, they are now sitting on the Mount of Olives looking across the Kidron Valley at the temple. And in the minds of the the disciples in, in the days of Jesus, the destruction of the temple and the end of the world they must go together. It was unthinkable for them to imagine this grand temple being destroyed in the way that Jesus describes without it also being the end of the world. So they asked Jesus when these things are going to take place and what sign will indicate when it's about to happen. And so in verse 4, Jesus answers them and he says, Watch out. That no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains." Jesus' first words to the disciples in response to their question about when the end will be are these. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. Let that sink in for a moment. Watch out that no one deceives you. There is no part of... uh, the Bible that there is more speculating done and various theories thrown about and people fighting and arguing and claiming that they know so much when they know so little than about Bible prophecy and the end of times. And Jesus says, be careful, watch out, that no one deceives you. This admonition and idea of watching out, being on our guard, it occurs repeatedly in this chapter. It's one of the major ideas, actually, that Jesus wants his disciples to take hold of here. Jesus warns us that deceivers and imposters, false prophets and messiahs are going to come. And I don't think Jesus is simply warning us against people who literally claim to be the messiah. Most people who claim to be messiah are easily recognized as frauds. They usually have like a sandwich board in their walking up and down the street. We know those people are not the Messiah. I believe he's also telling us to watch out for those who claim to have the answers for humanity's problems and for those who seek to insert themselves into the place that only Jesus Christ should occupy in our life and in this world. I mean, there's a constant parade of know-it-alls that come on and off the human stage claiming that they know the answer to the problems, calling us to follow them and their teachings, to believe in them and their ideas. We have religious leaders, we have politicians, we have scientists and musicians and actors and athletes and so on. There's only one true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And there may be times when you feel like he is absent, But don't give up and don't give in to these alternatives. He 
is here. He is true. He's faithful. He has not abandoned you. And he is coming back just as he promised. Jesus warns us that wars and disasters and turmoil and troubles of various kinds are going to come. These things have been a part of human life on this planet for a very long time, and they will continue to be. These things are not the end, he says. The end is still to come. As labor pains increase, as the time gets nearer to the time to give birth, though, so these things will also increase in frequency and intensity as the time gets closer to the end. How are we to respond to these things? Jesus says here, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. He's speaking to his followers. Do not be alarmed. This world is going to look like it's coming apart at the seams again and again. Human civilization will rise and fall. Natural disasters will ebb and flow. Troubles will come and go. This world in its present form is not going to end until God decides to put an end to it, no matter how ragged and scary it looks along the way. He says, don't be afraid. Look to the Lord for deliverance in this life and from this life. F.D. Bruner said about the way Christians should respond, In times of crisis, Christians should be the calmest people on the block because they have a dominical pax. Dominical means Jesus is the Lord and pax means peace. So in other words, we can have peace because we know that Jesus is the Lord over all. None of this is outside of His power and control. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace. I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Verse 9, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The word then in verse 9 signals a new beat here. And this period is uh, called the tribulation. Period. Some believe the rapture of the church will take place at this point and it will spare believers much of the suffering described here. Jesus tells us in other places, though, that his followers will suffer persecution at other times too. So it is instructive for us to take these things to heart, regardless of our views about the rapture of the church. So, if we are included among the believers who face severe persecution in this this life, we need to remember that it's not an indication that God is forsaking us. In fact, the Lord will be with us in a very special way at times like this. We'll be given 
strength and ability far beyond our own to be a witness for Jesus Christ. It says that those who remain faithful to Jesus will be saved. And as we have noted before, this faithfulness will not be entirely dependent upon our own strength. If it were, we would be lost for sure. The Lord has promised to help us through whatever difficulties we face in this life for Him. He will keep us faithful. He's faithful to His faithful ones. Now some have taken verse 14 very literally to mean that not until the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached in every place on earth will the second coming of Jesus take place. That may not be what is meant here. Instead, it could simply mean that the gospel, salvation through Jesus, will be preached and offered to Gentiles and not just to Jews. All people will be offered salvation through Jesus Christ. And that's something that took place in the book of Acts. The bottom line is this. No one will be able to say that God has been unjust. He has and does extend an invitation to receive salvation to all people. Unfortunately, many refuse that invitation. 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Verse 15 marks the beginning of what some refer to as the Great Tribulation, the final three-and-a-half-year period. In verse 15, it says, the abomination that causes desolation. It's an expression found in the book of Daniel. The exact meaning and what it refers to in the future has been debated and speculated about by many people over the years. In history, in the second century BC, the ruler of the Syrian empire, Antiochus Epiphanes, erected an idol of the Greek god Zeus, in the temple at Jerusalem and sacrificed pigs on the altar in an effort to desecrate it. He wanted to wipe out the Jewish religion and impose Greek culture on the Jews. What he did at the temple, it became known by the Jews as the abomination that causes desolation. Antiochus Epiphanes was one of the most wicked, evil people who have ever lived and is used as a type or precursor for the Antichrist. This term, the abomination that causes desolation, refers to something or someone that is completely evil and something that happens that desecrates and violates all that is holy about the worship of God. These verses certainly refer to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which took place in A.D. 70. But it's believed that these verses also refer to a time that has not yet taken place, which will be far more severe 
than the, than the destruction that the Romans brought against Jerusalem and the temple. In ancient times, in time of war, people who lived in the country, they would flee to the walled city for protection. But Jesus tells his followers that when they see the impending siege of the city of Jerusalem and this gross desecration of the temple, they should get as far away from Jerusalem as they can, as fast as they can, even though it is a walled city. It will not be a place of refuge. It's going to be destroyed along with everything in it. Jerusalem will not be a safe place. It will be the last place that you want to be when all this happens. It will be particularly difficult, he says, for people unable to travel quickly, like pregnant women, small children, and the elderly. Virtually every Jew in Israel in the days of Jesus believed that when the Messiah came, he would destroy their enemies. When Messiah actually did come, though, he tells them here that their temple, the centerpiece of their religious life, will be destroyed by their enemies. The difference between what they had hoped for and what really happened is shocking. And we should take it to heart ourselves as a warning about our own attitude about the things to come. It's good for us to remain humble about these things. We don't always know as much as we think we do. Twenty-two. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So Jesus, again, he gives a warning about false messiahs and prophets. In this time of great crisis and distress, there will be many coming forward claiming to be Messiah, and people will be desperately looking for someone to rescue them from this horrible situation that they're in. Some of these false messiahs will have the ability to perform miracles, he says, signs and wonders that will deceive many people. I want us to notice that miracles, signs and wonders and miracles, they do not automatically mean that someone is legit and from God. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so even, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather." Rather than the second coming of Jesus taking place in a remote or a hidden place, it will be dramatic and it will be obvious and visible to everyone, like lightning that lights up the sky from one end to the other. 
And as surely as you know, there is a carcass when you see the vultures gathering. So people will not miss being aware of the coming of Jesus. 29, he says, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Verse 29 marks a transition from the persecution and the suffering that God's people will face to the coming of Jesus Christ in great power to gather his people to be with him forever, never to suffer again. Verse 29, it describes the whole world coming apart just before the second coming of Jesus. We we don't know what all of this means and what it refers to. We just know that it will be the apocalyptic undoing of everything. And then in verses 30 and 31, we, we have the second coming of Jesus and his gathering his people to be with him forever. Christian, we have nothing to fear in this world. When we are persecuted for our faith in Jesus, he has promised to carry us through it. If we are alive during the days of his second coming, leading up to it, no matter how awful things get, we are told to lift up our head because our redemption is drawing near. Our hero is going to swoop down and rescue us. Jesus is coming back to get us. Thirty-two. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So he says, when the when the fig tree's twigs get tender and leaves begin to come out or something that is much more familiar to us, when we start to see the trees beginning to blossom, we know that summer is getting close. And in the same way, when these various things that Jesus has mentioned start taking place, we know that the end is getting close. How close are we now in our own day? Are are we in the final days now? We don't know. In one sense, every Christian in every generation has been living in the last days. We may very well be in the last days now. No one knows that for sure. But every Christian in every generation should live with expectant hope that this is the generation that will see the coming again of Jesus. What does Jesus mean by this generation in verse 34. Well, there are many ideas about what that means. What do I think it means? I don't know. 
It might simply mean the generation that sees these various signs taking place will also see the culmination of it all with the second coming of Jesus. Verse 35 is much easier to understand. The words of Jesus are the words of God. They're eternal. What he says will happen is going to happen. Everything Jesus has said can be believed and trusted and relied on. 36, but about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. No one but the Father in heaven knows when the second coming of Jesus will be. We we should remember that when people start telling us that they know when all this is going to happen. 37, he illustrates this. It says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. When Jesus comes back, it will be like it was in the days of Noah in that people will be busy in the seemingly ordinary events of life, thinking things are going to just go on as usual and never change. And then the Lord Jesus will come suddenly without warning and it will be too late for many. Verse 40, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. So again, the, the coming of the Lord Jesus will be sudden and it will be unexpected with, with one person ready and prepared and the other not. Verse 42, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So once again, Jesus tells us that his coming will be at an unexpected moment. So it's important that we be prepared and ready. This is where the rubber meets the road with this stuff, you guys. People can talk all they want about their theories and opinions about how the final curtain is going to come down on this world, but none of that gets us to where each of us needs to be. Will you and I be ready When Jesus Christ comes back, that is what matters. It doesn't matter if you are a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or an amillennialist or a preterist or a pre-tribber or a mid-tribber or a post-tribber or whatever else. (coughs) What matters is, will we be ready? 
How can we be ready? By trusting in Jesus as Savior and following him. By trusting in Jesus as Savior and following him. Jesus came to this fallen, broken, damaged world to save the fallen, broken, damaged people who live here. We can't save ourselves. We're too fallen, we're too broken, we're too damaged to do that. In order to receive the saving that Jesus came to give us, we need to admit that we can't save ourselves. We need to admit that we have sinned against God. We need to change our mind and our attitude about the way we are living our life. And we need to turn away from our old life and follow Jesus. We ask him to come into our life and change us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. And it's not going to be easy. We just read in this chapter how some of his followers are going to face tremendous difficulties in this life. But there's no other escape for anyone from what is coming. Jesus is the way to safety, the way to forgiveness, the way to life. Revelation 22.20 Jesus said this. John writes, He who testifies to these things says, Jesus says, Yes, I am coming soon. And John responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Father, we, we thank you for the hope that we have that Jesus is coming back. And we don't understand all of the prophecies and how they all fit together and whether our current events mesh up with those or not. But Lord, we want to be ready whenever it happens. We want to be looking expectantly to the coming of the Son of Man to rescue his people and to take us home, Lord. Lord, I pray that every one of us in this room this morning are ready and we do whatever is necessary to be ready and that your coming fills us with joy and hope and peace rather than fear and uncertainty, Lord, that instead it, it makes us feel secure in a very insecure place. Fill your people with peace today because we know that you are coming back and that your kingdom will be established over all. Bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen.